Welcome to the Imperfectly Perfect Campaign, sharing real-life stories from real people to unite them in global change for the face of mental health. We will also reduce the stigma, creating communication, healing, and awareness to save lives and inspire. Join us weekly as we talk to some of the highly acclaimed faces, influencers, experts, and others who have been through extreme adversity. So welcome to another episode of the Imperfectly Perfect podcast, where each week I'm joined by some of the world's most renowned faces in the entertainment industry, on the sports field, corporate leaders, and inspirational thought leaders around the world sharing their own truths and personal journeys. Today, we have none other than Chase Tang. Chase is an actor, entrepreneur, and mental health advocate. He was born and raised in Taiwan, and at the age of six, immigrated with his family to Canada. As a child, Chase was an elite-level hockey player, Athletics remain a big part of his life and daily routine to this day. He's got a Bachelor's of Commerce degree, and prior to entering the entertainment industry, he was a successful corporate executive. Since 2019, his popularity and following has grown significantly as a rising star in both Hollywood and in Asia. He's extremely passionate in speaking about personal and self-improvement and inspiring others to not have limiting beliefs for themselves. He's had his own struggles with mental health, experienced severe bouts of depression, anxiety, and panic attacks. He hopes to use his fame, popularity, and his own personal life struggles and challenges to help others in achieving their own dreams and strive to live a more meaningful, joyous life. So first and foremost, welcome to the show, Chase. Thank you so much for having me here, Glenn. I'm very excited to be on the show here. Imperfectly perfect. What a title. What a perfect title. I'm excited. Thank you for having me. Well, you know what? Now you've actually just said that. It's one of the questions I ask when I talk to every single person. So thinking about the whole premise of that title, what would you say through your experiences? And we're going to delve into that. But what does being perfectly perfect mean to you? You know, it's funny you ask that because I actually Googled imperfectly that word just to see what definition comes up. And there's a variety when it says that there's uh, so many like there's so many different elements of like, you know, if you want to say flaws or whatever thing. And I think the fact that when you say, you know, when people use words like flaws or a certain error or something that's a little different, but then you combine it with being perfect. I think it's like the perfect mesh where, you know, you can be all these things that I think people see as being imperfect, but at the same time, you can have all that, but still be perfect. And I think if I were to kind of summarize it, I, I think it's, it's just the perfect, um, that, that's the best way I kind of describe it. Wow. Well, you know, it's kind of funny, the whole premise behind IPC, and I know that you've looked into it and everything, but it's really to uncover a lot of people that are put on pedestals by media and a lot of people who have done successful things and we often we we have this narrative that we think we know them from say yourself from the movies from everything that you've done we look at you like anybody who's watching the video thinking there's a good looking guy look at him dressed with that suit and that tie like he's got it all going on but your story delves so much deeper and you're a huge mental health advocate, which we're going to touch on. But can you just take us, because I've openly spoke about your bio, but I love our listeners to really get a first-hand experience of, of just your story. So can you take us back because you were in the corporate world, you grew up in Canada, but you're originally from Taiwan? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll kind of give a, a summarized version. I, I've, I've kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of told my story so many, so many times, longer, shorter version. So for time's sake, I'll give a slightly shorter version. So I was 
born and raised in Taiwan and we immigrated to Canada very, very young. Um, so when I came to Canada, didn't know any English. I was very, very young. And then my parents, they put us into hockey. So a very Western Caucasian sport. And we grew up in a place that was, there's no Asians there. So my cultural aspect, I guess, was kind of just left behind. So I had to adapt and, and just try to fit in very quickly. And if you, um, if you ever been in Canada, hockey's like a big thing. It's like mm-hmm. the major, major thing. So um, fortunately, I was a good athlete and I did very well playing hockey. So that became a very large part of my identity, my childhood identity. That was something that um, gave me a lot of praise. I was very, um, you know, I think my parents felt very proud because I was good at sports and hockey, got a lot of attention with teachers and friends and stuff like that. So um, I think as an athlete, sometimes you identify as that is who you are. So that was my first actual, um, I guess if you want to say my first bout of experiencing depression, anxiety, when my athletic career did not work out the way I did, because I had no ground to stand on. Um, so I remember that was my first time actually seeing a psychologist. I was 15, 16, um, you know, when sports, when hockey didn't work out, I just felt like I had the rug pulled right out of me. So if you think about it being, you know, um, an Asian kid, in a foreign country and you kind of, you don't even look like the local people. You, you know, everything about you is different. That's the only thing that could allow you to fit in and and excel and get attention and sort of get praise. And when you don't have that, you're so lost. So, um, so eventually um, I was able to, you know, I got some treatment. I kind of moved on um, from athletics and I, you know, went to school, went to university and I worked in the corporate world. And the funny thing is, um, you know, when I went through the corporate world, I had kind of a, there was always a part of me that felt I was trying to compensate, you know, maybe compensate for maybe not playing professionally as an athlete or something like that. So I worked very hard in the corporate world and I did have a good career for a few years. Um, and then that was when I think um, near the end of my corporate career, I think I had the worst time of my life. Um, I was making very good money. I was very, very young, very young. And uh, I was like, just a pure workaholic. And I identify with that, identify with, you know, making a certain amount of money and being this, this, like, uh, if you want to say like somebody who can just take on everything and life is smooth and you could volunteer work here, still make a lot of, a lot of money, have a great social life, just like do everything. And for whatever reason, um, I got very overwhelmed. And then, um, and I experienced like, that was the scariest time. Um, extreme panic attacks, extreme anxiety. There was nights where uh, I can't even describe, but um, obviously I was identified with that identity. So, um, so I actually left the corporate world and I took probably about um, probably a good six months, just, just clear my head. And I was like, what am I doing with my life? You know, what do I actually want to do? What do I enjoy? And then that kind of led me into the entertainment industry and, you know, which is um, so far has been very good. I'm still considered very new, but um I think I've always had a passion for movies and I love everything with entertainment, just, just uh, the fast pace of it and, 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 and all that. So kind of a summarized version, that was kind of my, how I found myself uh, as an actor in the entertainment industry, kind of after leaving the, um, the corporate world. With the corporate world, when you were saying like, there's a lot of pressure re- revolving yeah. around that. And I know we were speaking earlier about, the cultural aspect and and my wife being Thai and we having open conversations regards to culture. And there's this thing sometimes, and I want to ask you this for any of our listeners there, that 
my wife has always felt obliged to take on a lot more, what's the word? Taken a lot more pressure to almost live up to parents and, and, and family expectations in the Asian culture. Was you taking it upon yourself, the pressure, or was that very similar to how my wife experienced it? Uh, you know, Glenn, I think you put it so perfectly. Um, in the Asian culture, there is, uh, I don't know if I would say it's conscious or subconscious, but there is a certain, there is this sort of pressure that it comes from um, parents where they, it's kind of like when you're doing well, they tend to show you off more. When you're not doing so well, you like can easily get ignored. And I think as a kid, as if, if that was kind of the way that you were always raised, um, you don't really know right from wrong. You don't know any better. And that's the one thing I sense very different in which I really love about sort of the Western culture and the Caucasian culture where I do sense there is, there's definitely a bit more, I don't like to use the word unconditional love, but there is an element where your, the level of attention you're getting is not so tied to your profession or how much money you're earning or what you are doing with your personal professional life, whether it's getting married, whether it's, you know, how well your job is going. And I sense that it's more, that pressure is more prevalent and a lot more intense among Asian culture. And that's across Thai, Taiwan, Korean. I think it's just, I think it's just, there's a, I think it's that, if you want to say kind of like, parents they they talk amongst each other and the older generation they kind of like to maybe not to use the word show off but present their their offspring you know and if things are not in the way that they want they kind of keep them quiet which i notice is not as common in the western culture caucasian culture when even when kids are not doing well parents will will proudly still show them off and, and everything so yeah so i think the way you described it very much right so there's that pressure so i think we tend to want to do a lot and we tend to maybe um, sometimes get in over our heads in terms of what we take on and taking on too much how do you think we as everybody coming together collectively how how do you think and, and we can only speak from personal experience because you are such a huge mental health advocate and you're really leading the way in the Asian community, like you openly speak about, of having these conversations, how do you think we can change that narrative towards our parents? Because we all know when it comes to parents, they're doing it out of love and they don't realize sometimes it's coming generationally, it's being passed on. Yeah. So how do you think we break that, especially in the Asian community? I think um, the best the best way to um, to change that narrative, and I, and I love that word, Glenn, you use about how do we kind of break that? Because I think the first thing we all need to realize is that um, we need to just accept that life is very hard, very, very hard. It's, you know, I know people who have so much money, but so many other elements of their life is so not aligned. And their life is very hard, too. But I also know people who are surrounded with family and love and financially Maybe people may not be impressed with where they're at, but their life is like, it's, it's quite good. So I've noticed that there's extremes on all elements. And I think it's being open to accept that there is so much variety. There is so much, there is not a right and wrong. Like if you are able to be happy every morning you get up, you're excited to tackle the day, you are winning and your life is good. And it doesn't matter 
what your job is, what you look like, what, how much you're earning. And I think that it's um, breaking out of a certain, when people say like a certain norm or like, this is the way things should be. This is the age that you need to get married. This is, you know, uh, the type of job that you should be having and all that kind of stuff. I think it's that openness to understand that just because one thing, let's say certain people follow certain, if you want to say a certain path, I know lots of people who follow that path perfectly. And then for, you know, 10, 15 years later, they look back and they feel like they wasted their time. So I think the biggest thing is the generational, if you want to say uh, the generational gap among maybe the elders and the youth is that they need to understand that um, life is just very difficult. Like just to, just to be content, be happy is, is tough. So we should not put so much pressure to say, okay, this is the way it should be. And if you don't do that, your life is meaningless. And, you know, cause there's just so much color and variety in this world. So I think that's the best way to sort of break out of that cycle. It's not a healthy cycle and it, it, it creates, um, unhappy individuals. And then if these individuals have children, they will pass down that um, very pessimistic, you know, fearful, you know, energy to their next generation. I love the way you explain it. And can you remember the day that you actually sat down with your parents and said you were struggling? Did, did it feel like everything that you was holding on because of what you thought generationally had been passed down, that they wouldn't be proud of you? but it was completely different because I think we all tend to yeah. do that. We think we're carrying this burden. And then as soon as we offload it and we share these stories with somebody, it's actually not as bad as we think. Yeah. Um, so I remember um, when I was 15, the first time I told my mom, I said, I think something is seriously wrong with me. I said, I couldn't even describe it. I just said, I'm sitting in class. And I'm putting my hand up to just even ask to go to the bathroom or to answer a question. And my heart is racing at 200 beats a second. I said, I've never experienced this. I don't know what is going on with me, but something is off. And then one day was when I went up to do a presentation and the nervousness, I, and I've done lots of presentations, the nervousness in me just overtook me. I couldn't talk. I was 15. And I was like, and I told the teacher, I was like, I can't do this. She's like, are you sure? I was like, yeah, I just can't. And I was like, what is going on with me? And then from then, it just got worse and worse and worse. So I remember I told him, I said, I don't know what's going on with me, but I think I need to go see a doctor. And then she's like, oh, I think you're having panic attacks. So then, you know, obviously, so six months, went to see a psychologist. And she was really good with that. She was very, um, took me to see a, a specialist right away. And the specialist, we walked through all these different exercises. She asked me about my upbringing. She obviously asked me about sports, asked me how I saw myself, where I fit in. Um, yeah, so I think I was very fortunate that, um, you know, that was my, so I think if she didn't take me to see a psychologist, I wouldn't have known how useful they could be. And then literally, um, uh, almost 10 years, 11 years later, when I was, uh, you know, in my adult life, I went to, I took, went to see a psychologist myself. Um, but yeah, that was a moment where, you know, my mom was very helpful, very understanding. Um, I didn't even know what a panic attack was. I just said, something is seriously wrong with me. Like, I don't know what I just... Like I'm in school and I'm just like, and then I, they were describing, I, I was experiencing social phobia as well. So I'd be in a group with a couple of people and just like experiencing these intense sensations of nervousness and psychologist is like, yeah, you're, you've got social phobia, panic attacks, anxiety. Um, and it, it kind of 
almost blended into a little bit of depression as well. Yeah, I was only 15. Yeah. Wow. And this is what I love about this campaign. It's so diverse with every single person from sports, from acting, from everything. And we often, like I say, we have this narrative that we think we know them and we have no idea what goes on behind the scenes. And I absolutely love talking to each and every person. And with you, when you played hockey, almost became like you said, professional sports, it becomes your identity. Then you moved into corporate, you transitioned, and then you moved and transitioned into acting. So that's three stages of three different professions. Yeah. How did you go from moving across that? Because I know there's a lot of people who do tie their identity, especially yeah. in professional sports. And you go through that, what am I now? Who am I now if I'm not that yeah. person? So how did you do it not once, but twice? Yeah. Um, you know, it's such a great question. You're, you're so good at asking questions, but I just love it. I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like if we're sitting on, a, on the sofa, we could chat like all night. You're so good at asking questions. You know um, what I will say, though? I'll just say this to you. I research people, but I will not write questions down. I let it flow. Well, because I think conversation-wise, letting conversations yeah. flow, we could go for a beer to the pub, even though I don't drink. Yeah. But <laughs> you know what I mean? I you can just talk I all like, night. I Feel like we're we're chatting as if you're literally like like we're not halfway across the world from each other. Kind of <laughs> um, so I think um, the biggest thing, and I tell people this is, do not get attached to like a certain identity or a certain profession or certain. There are certain skills that are transferable. Like you know, if you are someone that you know you like to talk, if you're someone that you know typically your work ethic is good or you're someone who's analytical, you like numbers or you like hang out with, you like associating with people or you like something that is very secure or you like something that is very, let's say, um, uh, you know, very like random, like every day something new. These are things that I think you can hold on to because these are things that come naturally for you. But I always tell people is like, don't get attached to a certain profession or a certain, because that's what happened with me with sports. And that's how, that's what led into my um if you want to say my downfall my massive depression same in the corporate world i was like okay this is what i'm going to be so the funny thing is i think now as as an actor as somebody in the in the in the as a public figure um i think people who who follow me and, and know me they understand my work i think everything is at a high level but at the same time i think one thing i always tell people is i know people have the impression that i have that do or die attitude i don't like i always look at it as if this career, for whatever reason, if it doesn't work out, if I, let's say for whatever reason, just my look, my whatever is not working out. I just look at it as, okay, what's the, maybe the next thing that could fit what I'm passionate about? You know, would that be moving into more of a director, producer role? Would that be maybe something under entertainment, maybe not necessarily an actor, maybe hosting, maybe something among combining maybe sports with business, whatever it might be. So I think that's the biggest thing is if you want to be able to transition successfully, you have to take those skills that will always be a part of you, but don't limit yourself to like, okay, that's the world that I want. Cause that's, I've Glenn, I've seen so many actors and even singers. Um, we all started out together and I think their level of stiffness comes from that do or die attitude and life is already hard. Don't make don't make a profession like a do or die because I think that's way too much pressure. You've got to make it where you're going to do your best. You're going to put everything into it. And, um, but never sort of bank your happiness or your 
the worst is when people put their identity on that. I think that's the worst. So that's the one thing I don't do is for the time being, you know, my profile is a certain type of profile, but maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, it might be something different. I would love to one day be your profile, a father, right? I think that's what I would love, a husband, a father. So um, so I think that's the that's the best advice I can give to swiftly transition to to try a variety of different things and do things and to do it, you know, with passion, not with that massive pressure of like, it's got to work out. Like that's, I think that's too, I don't suggest people do that. Yeah. I think it's something that I reached out to you before. And I said, that I really respected about you was the fact that you, you've just got this do attitude. It's almost like things aren't coming to you. Well, make your own way. And there was a, a certain thing that I read about you and sent it to you saying that you did your own PR and you did this and you did this. And I said, I did exactly the same and I had no experience in it. And I think sometimes, especially in the entertainment industry, what I've learned from an external point of view is sometimes you have to go out there and create opportunities. So did you take that mentality from corporate? Because corporate is a lot, especially as an executive, it is it is driven by results and a lot of the time. So did you take that mentality in towards the entertainment industry? Oh man, great. Such a good question. Uh, this question, Glenn, I actually have an answer. I About two years ago, this was a question I answer all the time, right? But it's been the, literally a couple of years. So one thing that I have sensed um, is, and I think this comes down to being adaptable and adjust, and you've got to understand what you're good at and what you're not good at. So when I enter the entertainment industry, I noticed that my ability to, my business acumen and my ability to understand how the entertainment industry works, how fame works, was at a much higher level than almost 99% of artists, whether that's a singer, actor, um, you know, musician, uh, model, whomever it is. But I noticed that artistically, they were a lot more gifted than me. So essentially, I knew that I had to sort of rely on my business smarts to be able to give myself a chance to, to stand out and to be able to you know, make progress of any sort. So you're absolutely right. Um, if I didn't have my, um, if you want to say my business experience or my business background from the prior you know, seven, eight years, I think it would have been a lot harder to, um, to sort of come through the limelight at a at sort of at this you know, at a fast pace that I had done things at. So it was definitely something that I was able to fall back on and, uh, and help in terms of, you know, understanding, like even getting an agent, getting a manager, you know, I've got a, you know, fortunately I've got a really good team now, you know, between Los Angeles, between Toronto, Vancouver and in Taiwan. But I think if I didn't have a business background, all that would be very overwhelming, you know, just understanding how everything works. You know, how do you communicate properly? How are they going to promote you? Where are they going to, you know, how much, how much money are we looking at to, to get this done or whatever it was? So I think without that background, everything would have felt a lot more difficult for sure. Wow. It's, um, yeah, the more and more I've got and, and built great friendships in that entertainment industry, the more I was like, I've never wanted to be in it. And I've just, I would move further and further because people don't understand the different facets of it. And if you haven't got a manager or an agent, you don't get in certain places, you don't get seen, you have to have this. And that all deals with, with mental health. But would you say, and it's a question that I often ask because when people again, look at you guys that are doing amazing things and Jupiter's legacy. Congratulations, by the way, Netflix and all the movies that you have done. You suddenly get this limelight cameras, the noise, everything around, which is again, is something on top when you've dealt with panic attacks in the past, has it hindered you at all 
with your pure advocacy for speaking out on mental health? Because I know a lot of people in the industry, one question I get asked when I go, go on platforms is, did you find it hard for people to step forward? Because in an industry where people think it will stop the progression of the career. And I said, you know what? At the beginning, there was a lot of hesitancy. But I think times are changing. And you can see successful people have dealt with struggles. And if it can show that they can be successful, so can you. So what's your experience been? Yeah, um, good question. I think, you know, the, it's always, um, I think as a, as a public figure, we always have, how would I say, there's always that challenge that we have where, so let me sort of describe it. I think sometimes our fan base or our following or the people that will look up to us, they like to see us in a light that is almost not human-like, like almost a little fantasy-like, almost somebody that is larger than life. So there's that element. But then there's also the other element where, you know, um, we want to be able to relate to people and, and, and show them like the human side of us. So it's always kind of finding that balance. And I did definitely sense that, um, is that, you know, if I'm always, let's say, let's say, um, talking about all my struggles and talking about all these different, um, you know, like just how hard my life is and everything. I do think that there is a certain shine that you will lose as a public figure. And I think all artists, how famous they are, they will always go through that. That's why you'll notice is, you know, the way PR is, the way fame is designed, the, the glitter, the limelight, it's always highlight reels because that is what sells. So I think when you combine mental health and, real life struggles to entertainment. Sometimes they don't quite go hand in hand because people don't follow entertainment because they want to see real life. They follow entertainment because they want to see a fantasy. They want to see something larger than life. They want to see people who are like, who just don't age for 20 years. They want to see people who literally look like they're like a walking Photoshop. So so that's why, So and I go through that all the time is that like, you know, I'm thinking, okay, like I, I want to sort of portray the real me but the real me may not, may not maybe kind of get the type of spark that I want. So I think it's always finding that balance between, you know, you do every so often, you want to show kind of the real you, but you, of course you can't do it all the time because it will hinder your, if you want to say, whether it's your publicity or your overall, that, that cool factor, that wow factor, that shine factor, it will diminish that bit if that's all you're doing. Yeah. Cause at the end of the day, it is a business. Exactly. That is. So there is two aspects of it, but I do, I do always appreciate when a lot of public figures, whatever demographic industry they are in, can be like yourself and relatable. Because what I've noticed through the campaign is, as soon as somebody comes on the campaign, the amount of messages that come in and say, "Oh my God, they've just changed my life," or "They've saved a life." So with all your advocacy towards mental health. There's been so many, I'm sure, because it has with me, of people reaching out and saying the difference that you have made. But there's always got to be that one that sticks in your mind that you're just like, oh, my God, sharing your story can actually save a life. And we always tend to remember that one. Can you remember that one? Um, I think if I think back on the, uh, you know, the, the, the differences, I would say um, – there was a few messages that I got from people where 
they would, um, and I never, I kind of never knew that they were um, kind of watching me so closely, but I got, um, and it was very consistent. Um, so the message that I would get would be, you know, I've been seeing a lot of stuff that you do and it's very, it's very out there. It's very, um, how would I say it's like, it's obviously, you know, non-traditional, the career path default, the way you live your life and everything. And, and people will say that like, seeing you kind of do these things with so little effort and how you're able to sort of handle and strive has actually given me a lot of other ways of looking at my own life in the smallest things. Like I try to now think outside the box and I had a lot of messages that come through, you know, I don't think, um, uh, I haven't been so fortunate where I think somebody have said, you know, like, you know, Chase, because of you, I think I, you know, I just didn't hurt myself. I don't think it's ever been something like that, but I think the biggest thing is I think a lot of people have told me that like, when they hear about my story and see what I've done, they now don't set that same limitation on themselves. And it could be something very simple from just the way that they are working to their diet, to their lifestyle. They're able to sort of think outside of the box, not limit themselves to what maybe what they known before. I, I think it's so important that when, when someone comes out and I don't know whether anyone's just opened the floor for you in an interview, just to literally say, you've got an audience now a global audience that listen to this, if there's anything that you could say from a personal experience, and again, especially when we was talking about the Asian culture who may struggle in saying their feelings, what would you say? I think um, I'll, uh, I think the biggest thing is if you are, we'll start on the Asian side. If you're an Asian person, um, and you are residing in a city or a country that is um, predominantly not Asian. Okay. I like to always, you know, um, what do they call it? You point out the, um, the white elephant or something. Like, I always like to state the obvious. Like, it's already hard. Like, you just got to get it out of the way. So, like, that's why, as in Canada, you know, I know that um, – like I never expect sort of an equal playing field. I already know. And it's, it's unspoken. People are never going to say, talk about it because it will come off kind of prejudice and stuff. But that is a reality is that if you are Asian and you are residing in a place that is predominantly non-Asian, like you are starting just a couple steps below everybody else. So it's, it's already tough. So you've got to sort of have that mental resilience and accept that this is kind of just, um, um, you know, the, the, I guess if you want to say the world that we currently live in right now, now saying that, I think it gives you a, um, an advantage where you can, um, how do I say it? Because you can kind of stay under the radar a little bit. Sometimes people are not going to be as, you're not going to have as much attention on you, but at the same time, it's double-edged sword because you know, you may not get the same type of treatment what somebody else would like. So I think it's kind of both ways. Um, so I think as an Asian person, you know, it's, um, I know a lot of Asian people who feel like they don't fit in. And I find that um, I've known lots of Asian people who they, they came to school in Canada for university. And after a few years, they left and went back home because it's just tough to fit in. And I, and I think it might be consistent across other, um, if you want to say Caucasian based uh, countries and stuff. So I think as an, as an Asian, I think you've got to have that mental resiliency to understand that and accept that, you know, you are not in a place that um, maybe you kind of grew up and where 
people primarily look like you. And if you can accept that, usually you are able to not only make peace with it, but can take steps in sort of integrating yourself into fitting in, into, you know, making a life that uh, you feel proud about and where people maybe kind of respect you and, and everything like that. And that was always been my challenge, you know, being from immigrating from Taiwan to a very, uh, a very Caucasian based um, province in Canada and then coming to Ontario, going to a university, very Caucasian dominant university as well. So I've kind of always dealt with that. Um, yeah. So I think that's my best advice for, for um, sort of the Asian demographic, because if you're not able to fit in and integrate yourself with society, it's um, it's, this is how that seed gets planted with mm. when people start to feel unhappy and the mental element starts to kick in. And if it gets more severe and long-term, it could lead into depression and a variety of other things. You know, so I always tell people is you want to, you want to, um, you want to address it much, much earlier. You got, and the best way you got to accept certain things. You got to accept certain, very certain challenges, certain variables that you're dealt with and you've got to kind of work within that. Yeah. Yeah. And you've, you've, you've clearly done a lot of work on yourself internally and externally when it comes. So I always say the physical work is, is hard, whatever you've achieved, the emotional work, the mental work, the spiritual work, so you can keep on walking forwards. But I just want to say you've, you've moved forward. You've carved out this incredible career in, in entertainment. Now I mentioned the new Netflix. Um, what are some of the upcoming projects that you've got, you've got involved? Like people can go and find you on, I was watching some of your stuff on, um, I think it was Instagram, some of your stories and some of your, your fitness routines and yeah. mate, you're in great shape as well. You look oh. good. You're in that suit. Uh, <laughs> you got it all going on. You know, right now, um, I think I'm very, number one, I think, um, I'm very particular, the type of projects that I want to associate with. And I think, it, um, it just kind of comes down to, um, you know, I, I never really saw myself as wanting the career path of, let's say, just being kind of a working actor. You know, I would, you know, my aspiration is to be like, you know, uh, like a, a big star, like a Dwayne Johnson, like a Mark Wahlberg. So I think the biggest thing is um, uh, the type of projects that, uh, that I um, am in discussion with are, usually much uh, more significant. And I think um, maybe, you know, my pickiness and everything kind of comes from my, you know, business background, you know, so um, yeah, over the next, um, you know, I'm hoping over the next kind of one to two to three years, I've got some, um, you know, I'm able to sort of take my own career at a 10 X kind of level. And I think my, my life has never followed a certain, if you want to say a certain traditional path. And I don't expect my, um, my uh my career as an actor to follow the same thing i think um i know people are always very curious like you know what is he working on and i think i um i do turn down a lot of um if you want to say projects that i feel may not move the needle forward you know and i think that's because i think time is very valuable i think we're on earth for a very short time and there's a lot of things i'm very passionate about but i feel from a pure entertainment career perspective um, it's got to be something that I think can um, can really project me in the right trajectory. So a day in a life um, for myself, Glenn, is uh, I'm probably in 10 to 15 meetings uh, a week, every single week. Uh, yeah, so 
So having on these Zoom calls is like a is a normal thing. Usually I don't dress like this only for you because you you know because um, I, I was so excited to be on the show. But uh, yeah, I've got um, a, a few different things kind of in the works. Um, and uh, once it kind of comes out, obviously I'll kind of announce and stuff like that. Sweet. And where can people find more information about you, Chase? Yeah, I always tell people I'm like pretty much on all social media except Twitter and not on TikTok. Uh, maybe one day I might start doing TikTok, but not no Twitter and TikTok, but everything <laughs> else. I always tell people if you want to know more about me, you just throw me into Google and you'll you'll find uh, plenty of different uh, things. So just throw me into Google. Sweet. Well, I will put all the links up where you can find Chase. I just want to say on behalf of myself, on behalf of everybody, our audience, and for all the work you do for your advocacy for mental health. Thank you, mate. And guys, just remember, find where Chase is, keep following him, see all the amazing things he's doing. But most of all, guys, keep having the hard conversations because it's hard conversations that save lives. To find out more about the Imperfectly Perfect campaign and how you can get involved, simply head to our official website at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org or email us today at info at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org to speak to one of the team. The Imperfectly Perfect campaign is creating awareness and is not a substitute for professional advice. Should you need help, please refer to your nearest crisis number.